In this episode, the Counter Stories crew tackles the nuance of cultural membership in their respective communities. What does it mean to be a card-carrying member within communities of color? And how do we hold on to that which is most sacred and recognizable to us as our cultural community shifts? And who gets to police it? This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dinjos Group and executive director of Arts Us. I'm Luz Maria Frias, deputy attorney general with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and cultural consultant. Lee Lee couldn't be with us today, and so we wish her well with some important rest and relaxation. So um, our producer with the most couldn't be here with us today, but we, we, we have a topic today. So if you, <laughs> you are a person of color and you come or you come from a particular cultural community, and this is something that all of us can share, there are going to be conversations about who is a member or who is not, or who is a more authentic member and who is not. If you, um, and, and, and I know it's something that we chuckle about as well, but this is something that comes. Um, I can think about many conversations with folks in my community um, where we joke about somebody having their black card, right? Or we may joke about uh, somebody from outside of our cultural space acting in a way that goes, oh, man, they, they look like they got a black card or something. But these issues of cultural membership, of authentic membership, become very important, especially for communities who are continuing to thrive, to hold on to things that have been attempted, to attempts at ripping away, attempts at co-opting or, or appropriating. Um, and so matters of identity matter. So I'm, I want to start us off today just by opening this up. What, are, what have been your encounters with this uh, kind of internal policing of authentic identity? It's wild. <laughs> plenty, <laughs> plenty of examples. I'll start with one and then uh, turn it over to, to you folks and we can we can keep going just like a pool game. Keep shooting the, the balls here. You know, it's um, one of the most pervasive practices in the Latinx community in particular is questioning someone's authenticity of being Latinx if they don't speak the language, if they don't speak Spanish. And now we all know that there uh, was a big movement and continues to be a big movement of assimilation. And what assimilation means in the States is you lose your culture, you lose your language and you blend in, quote unquote, as an American. And to be an American means you only speak one language, which is ludicrous because most of the world outside of the U.S. speaks two to three languages. And somehow we are so ethnocentric that we only speak the one language. And that's the culture here in the U.S., which is, um, I think, short-sighted in particular because there's research that shows us that when you speak a second language or multiple languages, there's a side of your brain that becomes more fully developed than if you are monolingual. And it has a, you have a greater aptitude for sciences and math. Uh, so it actually is cognitively a benefit to be bilingual or trilingual um, and beyond that. So in our, in our community, unfortunately, a lot of the elders were pressured to assimilate and not pursue teaching the language to their children. They wanted to avoid um, scrutiny and discrimination by uh, having their children not be targeted because they're speaking a language other than English. And then we know there was a very long uh, effort and continued effort of the English only laws and ordinances that were passed around the country here in the States, whether it's city or um, other municipality, you know, county and, and such, that there was pressure from all, all types of areas to suppress our culture and our language. And personally, I it's a gift that I have that my parents taught me Spanish and 
and it's been incredibly useful. Uh, and there's also the beauty of the language. When I listen to songs in Spanish, and I've said this to my husband and, and friends who are not native Spanish speakers, there is a beauty in the words and the lyrics that come out in Spanish that don't necessarily um, relay the same intensity and message that you would have in English. And I just, yeah, and I, I just wish that folks could have the gift of really acknowledging and hearing those lyrics the way we are as Spanish speakers, because there's such a beautiful, beautiful moment to be able to do that. And there's a richness that I'm able to tap into that most folks are unable to. So that's a, you know, that's just a big vacuum, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, let's go around the room and see what uh, what's on your mind. Well, you know, Luz, um, I think the experience for the American Indian community um, has experienced those same things. All, all the uh, framework that you just laid out. Um, the exception where your community was responding in terms of the pressure they were feeling to assimilate in the American Indian community, there were actual policies and, and programs put in place to assimilate us. And yeah, and we've taught, you know, we've talked about this in other counter stories where, where, uh, boarding schools were purposely created as a way to, um, um, re-educate our children away from our language, away from our culture, and uh, assimilate them into the uh, dominant culture. And so, um, and we end up, however, in the same spot. Um, you know, my mother was sent to boarding school. And when we were younger and we would go up to the reservation to, to visit our relatives, um, at that time, almost everyone spoke Anishinaabe, spoke Ojibwe. Uh, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, all my aunts and uncles, and most of my cousins that were older than I were all spoke the language. The only ones who didn't speak were myself and my siblings and my younger cousins you know, the cousins that were around my age. Um, and even then it differed if they lived on the reservation and because I was born and raised in, in the city. And when we would ask our mother to teach us the language, she would tell us, no, we needed to learn English. And as we got older, we realized that was the impact the boarding school had on her. But you know, so there, but just the language, the culture, I think that, you know, with with how Anthony opened up this, this our, our segment is this discussion in terms of, well, then what does that mean? What does that mean to me um, to be Native, right? What does it mean for me to be Anishinaabe? What does it mean for me to be Indigenous? What does it mean for me to be an Indian? And I think that that's something that are is an ongoing um, discussion in our community, you know, because there are efforts to regain our culture. There's efforts to regain our language. And I'm beginning now to kind of experience this thing where, where, you know, the, are you more Indian if you go to powwows? And then there's a difference between our powwows, right? You know, there, there are large gathering powwows where there's competition and, and a, you know, a, a lot of different um, dances and costumes, and they're absolutely gorgeous. Those are kind of more of our competition powwows. Um, Lacks, we have a traditional powwow. Um that tends to be more down to earth and more just within the community. But when you, and then we have another um, gatherings that are called big drums and, and every reservation has big drums. And that's where the actual cultural awareness, cultural awakening 
cultural reconnection actually happens. And those are totally different than the traditional and the competition powwows. But does it make you more Indian if you attend any of those? Or if you don't attend, I mean, I've been Indian my entire life. Um, learning Ojibwe is difficult, you know. Um, I know how to say my name. I, I can say no. You know, the one thing our mother did teach us was how to say no in Ojibwe. Uh, we all know how to say Gawain. Um, But does that make me less Indian if I don't speak my language? Does that make you less Latino if you don't speak Spanish? And, or, you know, am I not as Indian as someone who goes to a lot of powwows? A lot of my friends do the powwow um, trail during the summer and they travel from, from powwow to powwow. Um, I, you know, have never done that. I go to powwows, but not, not on the extent like that. And I've never danced. Um, at powwows and now my knees prevent me from even going to powwows because sometimes it's too hard for me to get from where you have to park just to you know just to go and get in there because I have bad knees but does that make me less Indian and I think that's you know that's the cultural I think um, struggle I see in our community in terms of what what does it mean to be native you know what I mean? And, and who's who who can judge that? I mean, that's the other part, right? You're asking these questions. And my question in return is who has what we call in the legal profession standing? Who has the ability to stand in and question that? And I mean, I challenge that because what you feel in your heart, and I hear you saying it so passionately, Don, is clear and convincing that you are very much attached to your both identities. And unfortunately, in the Western culture here in the States, it is a <laughs> it is an individualist society and culture that it's an either or. It's not a both and. And it's a matter of claiming your identities the way you see it, the way you feel in your heart. And no one else is, I think, in the right to be questioning that. So I have to be that guy then. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. Be that guy, Anthony. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the crass version of it, be, it would be, are you less Indian because of X, Y, and Z? I'm, am I less black because of X, Y, and Z? I think there is, um, I, I, the, the language piece is is interesting. I have, I have to be honest, with some jealousy that you even have access to being able to have a language barrier that keeps, that's a container for some of the cultural space. This is something that me as a multi-generational African-American have not been able to keep. And I don't say that to try to call into question or to be funny or crass. I, I, I'm really, um, I, I, I want to put in a, 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 hold a space forward to say that we have lost some things in this fire. And that can, that is possible. I, 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 I feel um, for me, you know, yes, the altruistic space to say that, that who is anybody to tell you who you are or how much of your own cultural space you are. But I think we do have to be honest with the fact that part of the, um, uh, part of this project, this racial project in the United States has been successful. Um, you know, and it's hard to say, it's hard to come to terms with, but the boarding schools had some degree of success of, of, of dismantling culture. The actual genocide that happened had success in dismantling culture. So I, I think, um, you know, we, we have to, we have this conversation. It has an air of kind of, um, uh, mourning in the backdrop of it because some of those projects have been successful. Now, now for me, you know, not having a cultural barrier, uh, the things that have been the container, and I'm just wondering what I'm using because we didn't have a language container, but we had some degrees of cultural containers. There are certain things that I have, been, I have grown up thinking that only black folks can do well. And they can serve as a marker, as a language does, to say that there's um, there's some some membership to this group. 
that constantly though gets interrupted. I find myself yesterday uh, um, reminiscing at all these classic, um, these classic movies. I'm gonna say it again because I don't know what's going on out there. These classic movies um, like Cadillac Records and the Five Heartbeats and the Temptations. Like there's this whole music industry um, uh, memorialization of the loss of musical culture where folks have come in. Um, listen to our culture, then go reproduce it themselves. And all of a sudden rock and roll becomes known globally more as a white uh, cultural expression than the black cultural expression that gave birth to all of it. I mean, there's a perfect scene in, in, in Cadillac records where muddy waters is sitting outside. And all of a sudden the cops are harassing these British guys for showing up with their long hair. And they're coming there because they, they call themselves the Rolling Stones after Muddy, one of Muddy Waters' songs. And we invite in with open arms and all of a sudden the Rolling Stones are famous and hot and Muddy Waters can't even pay the bills. So, so there's, this, um, there's this preservation then that comes because of the theft that starts to police internally. And it becomes very problematic. Are you black? The, the way you talk becomes a marker of how black you are. Um, your status... Um, and unfortunately, and and kind of um, cognitive dissonant wise, becomes a marker of whether or not you're black, <laughs> how black you are, whether or not how you do your hair, what music you listen to. All of a sudden, there's folks grasping at all these markers that are so flimsy because they're out open and accessible to everybody, and and cooptation and internalized oppression comes in. Like there is, it's just a quagmire for me. Um, which is not the same as my uh, family members who are from Liberia, still have their language, still are connected to a particular cultural tribal root. Or, or my Ghanaian friends who have a particular cultural box or container that's just a lot harder to put a container around for multi-generational African-Americans. So it's a problematic question. You know, well, Anthony, <clears throat> Anthony, you also, you also raised... Um, you know, with the appropriation and the theft, uh, what came to mind immediately was, I don't know if you folks saw this last week, there was a boycott by black TikTok folks because they um, there's a certain group of black uh, TikTok folks that are influencers, right? So you have to have X number of followers to be acknowledged as an influencer. And what the message there was is, look, we as influencers on TikTok are, you know, as artists, we have our products here, whether it is a dance, you know, that they've come up with or a song or movement or something that ends up being marketable, so to speak, as a mainstream type of behavior that then the white culture co-ops and there's no credit given to these influencers who are young black artists. There is no payment of any sort either. So that goes to the theft that you just raised as well. Uh, and it's, it's just this co-optation that folks are just tired of because it's been going on for over a century, I'll, I'll say that. Which only enhances the internal, in-group, in-culture <laughs> policing of what is culture. You know, it, it, it exasperates it. Well, it's just that, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking about this in terms of of my, you know, my own personal experience. And, and you know, and, and, and listening to you talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, for Africans that came here, their language was removed immediately. And um, as well as their names, you know, so so those things were immediate removals where for us and the native side, it was a, a gradual process. Right. And ending with the boarding school thing. And then um, and then I'm, you know, am a member of both those communities. And and, I, and as you were talking, you know, um, it a buddy of mine brought me down to his hometown uh, a, a small town in Arkansas. And so it was the first time that I had gone down south and it 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 literally blew my mind because it was it was a typical southern small town that you read about that I read about, right? From Richard Wright, from James Baldwin, 
from these black authors that that Dr. Mahmoud al Khati introduced me to when I was at McAllister. Um, it, and it was typical. One, <laughs> the town we entered, the white side of town, had paved sidewalks, manicured, you know, uh, lawns, very nice homes. And then there was a two-block area, which was the actual kind of downtown, you know, the in business section. And then it dropped down to the railroad tracks, and then you were you cross the railroad tracks, you in the levee, and then that because that's where my buddy and his family live. And I went, I was in shock. It was, I mean, it was, and but life was different. Black community down there was much different than what I had growing up with here in the in the, the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. Because I, you know, I grew up in the black community, pretty much in North Minneapolis. I, I'm out of the projects, but my experience there in the black community looked and felt totally different from what I saw and experienced when I went with him to the small town in Arkansas. Was totally well, and different. There's a sense of home. Whenever my wife and I, we, we we each year go down to visit her family in Alabama. And when we go on to the hill, this is what we call it. Go, we go on to the hill, right off of Arkadelphia Road. Um, there is a sense of home embedded within this space. There's a there's a there is a, a, a an exhale. And and I think um I, I think it's important to bring forward that yes, there's the surface culture elements that you can touch, see. But I think the thing that is really at play, because there can be some policing around there and it gets trivial and it gets ridiculous. And, and, and you know, I, I ain't got no time or stomach for that. But there is an essence question to me. And I can't necessarily always put it into words, although there is an understanding. Like it doesn't translate to English, even though we speak English, right? Um, I, I think there's an, a cultural essence space that just lets me know when when the center is there, when I don't have to use, um, I don't have to explain a bunch of things. I don't have to do a whole lot of, of translation that that's just, there's just a home space. And I feel that. And one of the things that complicates that for me is sometimes it's wrapped in things that were part of surviving or thriving in, a, in, in this space of disparity. Um, where we built culture around some of the th all the things we didn't have and then all the ingenuity and striving we did have. Like uh, <laughs> if me and a group of friends uh, of mine were sitting around, we were all black males who had challenged uh, experiences growing up and differing relationships with father or father figures, right? We have a communal space, so we weren't lacking in father figures, but we may have been lacking in fathers at certain times in, in, our, in our lives. And I found us laughing and reminiscing at the fact that none of us, um, none of us have a fear of going hungry because of our experiences <laughs> that are tied to our cultural space as black men. We ha we have we realize that our um, other members of our friends group who aren't black and didn't have that experience, didn't have an experience of poverty growing up, didn't have experience of cultural. Um, experiences through that poverty growing up, we have no fear. Like there is no fear that we aren't going to be able to figure out some way to to eat and feed folks. That it's just it's it, the anxiety isn't there in the same way that it's there when some of our friends who didn't have that experience experience hardship, experience job transitions or any of that. And we just found it interesting, and we were laughing at ourselves about it that that resiliency we would name as a part of the 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 cultural ethos, you know. Um, but that's also shared, you know, it's funny because I had a similar conversation with, with some of my friends who grew up poor and, uh, um, with an Irish backgrounds and have a deep history that their family taught them about surviving particular things. And so what do you do as a box? We thought we were, it was a cultural marker for ourselves. And then we intersect that with many other experiences and other folks can relate. And so it's not a, it's not culturally specific to being black, multi-generational, African-American through the history of slavery in the United States. And so then what do I grab onto as cultural markers? Like it's it's a deep question when you get to the essence side, the deeper. You know, I think about a number of things. One is a hundred years ago, you had a different set of immigrants coming to the States. 
mostly from Europe, right? We're talking Italians, Irish, and Minnesota, you got Swedes and Norwegians. I mean, think about the fact that they had to assimilate as well, and they lost their language. And I have plenty of friends who have these uh, cultural backgrounds, and they lament the fact that they're unable to enjoy the language and more so their culture, quite honestly, because it's all been so mainstreamed. And then I also think about adoptees. Minnesota has a large population of adoptees, many from China, of course, when China still had the one child rule and and they've now abandoned that because it's been so disastrous to their their, um, forecast in terms of a workforce going forward. A lot of Korean adoptees, uh, and I have a number of of, uh, friends who are adoptees from both China and Korea, and then quite a number of adoptees from Colombia and from Guatemala. And without fail, when I speak to any one of my friends who are adoptees, they were adopted, of course, by white folks. You know, So they're not being adopted by folks within their same culture. And the struggle for them is of a deeper level, which is they were raised as children of white parents and were stripped of the opportunity to grow up with their native language and their native culture because they were they left their country of origin. And and then so they're they're feeling conflicted in their hearts that. The world sees them as Korean or Chinese as they present or, you know, Colombian or Guatemalan, but yet they don't have the cultural identity and markers to go with it and having then to struggle in that in that vein. And then I've been the other thing that comes to mind is I've been in the workforce where I've had uh, colleagues who are adoptees and when other coworkers learn that they're adoptees of white parents, they don't acknowledge their coworkers as BIPOC. You know, so it's it's also stripping these adoptees who are BIPOC of their own identity, even though they present physically as BIPOC. So it, it can get pretty complex, you know, when you think about all this stuff. And what it boils down to me is just agreeing with what Don said earlier about what's in his heart. You know, if in his heart, that's who he is, then who are who are any of us to begin to question that, the authenticity of that and and just help him celebrate that in my mind. But and I, you know, and I'm not disagreeing with that. So as you were talking, you know, with Ant, with, with uh, and then with what Anthony threw in there, it made me think of just my own experience growing up. Where, where one summer when I was about ten years old, um, my mother got sick, and so I was sent up to the Malax Indian Reservation, and I stayed with my great grandmother, and um, she didn't speak English. I, I think she could she could say our names. I think she could count up to ten, but that was the extent of her English. She spoke strictly Ojibwe, and then her son, my grandfather, lived in the house right next to hers because they built this tar paper house for her that at the time had no indoor plumbing, and um, so you know my experience just in my lifetime. I had a great grandmother. My grandfather were fluent speakers, and all the elders at that time were all fluent speakers, because um, that's all we heard when we were kids. When I was on a reservation, um, my mother was uh, Ojibwe was her initial language, her first language, uh, but she was sent to boarding school. So by the time she gave birth to me and my brothers and sisters, um, she had relocated to the Twin Cities and was speaking English, but she could still speak the language when we would go up to the reservation when we were younger. But as we got older, she lost her language. 
because she wasn't using it with her um, with with relatives in the cities as we kind of begin to move around. And and so there was less contact. And then she slowly began to lose her language. Whereas um, I have an uncle, my mom's younger brother was raised on the reservation with my grandfather and he learned the language. So he's now an elder. I guess I kind of fall in that elder category, but many of our current elders are that last generation that were sent to the boarding schools. And many of them were kind of like my mom, where where they were born on the reservation. Many may have relocated and then have returned and may be at various different um, levels of their language because of the boarding school experience. And then also at various different levels of, of uh, those cultural mores that were kind of removed from them because of the boarding school um, experience. So, so, so even in my lifetime, I've seen this where almost all the elders spoke Ojibwe to where we're now down to a few speakers and others learning. And thank God there are some younger folks in the community that are learning the language um, and are teaching it. So the, you know, I think the language will remain um, but you know, that, that's, that's a, a huge adjustment just in my lifetime to live through that and experience that. And when, I, and when you talked about being poor or, or poverty, you know, it made me think about uh, how that ties in because living, living on res, um, and, and in our culture on the native American side, on the Ojibwe side, uh, we lived off the land. We hunted. We fished. We always had we always had food to eat, uh, regardless of what was happening, because we always had food. Material wealth wasn't anything that was a part of our culture. I mean, yeah, I I learned quickly that um, that you know things that we had we readily gave away. So material wealth wasn't wasn't something that we strive to do. So when you look at it in terms of wealth or poverty, I think the outside looking in would consider us low uh, poverty, right? Low income. But when you're on the inside looking out, you had everything you needed, right? Like, <laughs> which, which is, becomes itself a marker, right? There, there's a, a way that I can walk into a space. Actually, Don, we've, we've, we've experienced this. It, it, it was shorthand. You took me fishing, right? Um, and you showed me this spot, right? On, on, um, I can't remember what, what lake it was, but we were striking out, right? This elder comes floating by on his boat and we've been watching him pull fish out all morning and we've been striking out, right? And he comes over and he just, he gives us a few tips, a few pointers. He says, give a little action this way. This is what's happening. And he passes that wisdom to us. And then we start pulling fish out, right? I get home and this is what gets to me to the, to the essence thing, the collectivist essence side, because what happened? We got home. You threw it without even talking. You just threw all these big giant panfish into my bucket. Right. We didn't have a conversation, but what happened? I went home. I cleaned them. I fried them bad boys up, seasoned them to perfection. Didn't even ask you about seasoning or nothing like that because we had a shorthand. We knew what needed to happen. And then I showed up at your house and brought, dropped some of them off because that's just what we did. Mm. To me, there's a deeper cultural essence thing there that, and 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 that's what I'm getting to, right? When when I feel like I am acting or I'm being a a, a card carrying member <laughs> of my cultural community, however you the complicated pieces around it, right? There are these shorthand pieces that don't require navigation; they just happen. They just are. 
It's like we walk into the kitchen and start talking and all of a sudden start tossing stuff into the pot without having any conversation because there is an essence, there's, there's something under there that we don't have to explain across. That's the deep essence side that, that to me are where some very interesting cultural in versus out grouping happens. And that's where it gets problematic. I don't, I don't feel, um, I don't feel, uh, frustration at the surface level quibbles about in and out culture, but I do definitely feel concerns and protection and defensiveness. And, and I'm just trying to be real, completely 100% honest here with the deep essence things. Um, and that's where I, that's where I start to get into my feelings. I start to get into, um, some of the, some of the, I don't know, the, the, the protection spaces and wonderings about, who's here for the culture and who's not. And that matters at the deep essence level because of the fight we've had to try to keep the container. Yeah, I, I can see that, you know, and before I comment on that, I wanted to comment on <laughs> Don's, your, uh, your comment about not feeling that you were low income at that point, right? Looking on the inside. And what struck me with that comment is, ACEs, right? Adverse childhood experiences that uh, are widely, you know, part of the discussion and, and heck, you know, social work uh, circles and things of that sort. Heck, I, I reflect on my own experience. I grew up inner city Chicago. I say the barrio because it was a barrio. And that was normal. I, I had no idea that we were as low income as True indeed. The, the world knew, right? <laughs> True indeed. I thought, I thought everybody had ice buildup on the inside of their windows. All of our windows wow. in, our, in our apartment, we had ice buildup on the inside. We had uh, one space heater uh, in the dining room that was supposed to heat up, you know, the two bedrooms and the living room and, and dining room five kids in, um, in one bedroom, you know? So the three girls, um, so myself and my two sisters slept in one bedroom and then my brothers ended up sleeping on, on a, another level that wasn't really fit for sleeping, but that's what you do. Um, and, and we never thought about our being low income at that point. We didn't have health insurance. The first time I had health insurance was in law school and that was, after having a, a medical emergency that the dean of the law school then taught me about health insurance. I didn't know about health insurance. I grew up with without it. So, you know, when you make those comments, um, I think about some of these other aspects of how it is that we are so resilient. I'm not afraid of failing because I, I've, <laughs> I come from very modest means and I, I know the reality of it, that I can be in that same situation at any point in time. So I, I don't fool myself thinking that I'm always going to be at a certain level. Um, my, my spending habits have not ever changed. I mean, I still end up being very, very careful with my money because we had to be. You know, we were very cognizant growing up of the little that we did have. We had to be very strategic and smart with what we did with it. So I think about that through line for all three of us um, that we share and, and it helps shape who we are as individuals, but also our perspectives and connecting with other people who some folks might look at, at any one of us, you know, and say, Don, you're a professor, uh, now retired, but you know, what do you know about being low income, you know, or me, you know, having three degrees behind me. What do I know? Well, if they got to know us a little bit better as they are here, you know, they understand who we really are. And those are the experiences, at least for me, that are in my heart that I'll never let go of. But I, I got to ask the question, right? So, so, so everybody, you know, the, the experiences of, of, of perseverance through poverty are not specific to any one cultural group, Right. But there is something different around the intersections of race, culture, class, and poverty, and all of those that are different, right? So how I experience poverty is has some asterisks to it that are different. Um, and one of the things I struggle with is the um, connection between 
cultures of poverty and my home culture, right? Um, that there are some things that are cultural markers and sayings that we'll say that are about that perseverance through poverty, but how well, how willing am I to allow that to be a defining marker of blackness, <laughs> even though in some ways it's a defining marker of blackness? That like it 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 gets really deep. And I, I think what's at center point for me is to what degree do I defend, right? I, I don't feel a need to defend having been poor. Um, you know, I don't, that's not something that somebody is going to challenge my, my poverty credential. I'm not, that's not going to elicit anything from me, but you challenge my blackness. <laughs> you challenge my membership or connection to this particular racial, cultural, ethnic, political experience in the United States having dark skin. And that is something that there's going to be some defense of. There is something to to fight for in that regard. And that's the the arena um, that where policing gets problematic. Where somebody comes and says, you know, the way you talk, you, you, how black is you? Are you really black? Are you black? Are you black, black, or are you just black? Um, I've actually been asked that before by folks in my community. And I've had it come up in in training environments or environments with dominant culture folks, with white folks, where somebody says, well, I'm blacker than they are. And they're, I don't know if they're trying to be funny, if they actually are serious or, or what's going on, but these weird statements where folks feel like blackness is something that you put on, right? Our cultures are something that you put on. And in that space, I have a compilation to, to defend the culture. Um, even while being saying, um, being called by one group saying you ain't black enough, and the other one says, "Oh, you super black, you a rep- you representative," so so it gets problematic. Uh, it, it gets extremely problematic. Yeah, my reaction to that is it's generational, right? When I came out of the projects in North Minneapolis, went to Lincoln, went to North, graduated from Minneapolis Central. Um, yeah. It, being biracial, so I you know, flip-flopped on both sides. But younger, I was more connected to our current grammar, our current language, right? I was I was a brother, right? I was a black Indian. And and so, but the older I get, I lose touch with uh, um, language. You well, know what with, I mean? With, come, the, with come, the generative, young with generative the genera- portion exactly. of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, the same thing I see happening now in the American Indian community. So so now a lot of our younger, educated, um, indigenous individuals are, are being educated in programs around decolonization. And so they're coming right out of college with this built into their persona, their their armor, and they're coming out and they are they are uh, um addressing and attacking these systems uh from from the dominant culture that have colonized American Indians in our in our um in this country where my generation we didn't have that language um we didn't have those programs we had to kind of learn on the job this decolonization, right? I mean, there was a point where where we learned these things, and I think every every probably community of color and indigenous population, at least in this country, that as you grow, you learn how to kind of decouple what you've been told you who you are as opposed to really who you are culturally. And you go through that process of decoupling what the dominant culture tells you you are. So that, to me, it was a process that we had to live through and come to grips on our own. And our younger generation is getting that education in in higher education. They're coming up armed to do battle and it took us you know we were doing battle but we were doing it differently to finally one day i said yeah the hell i'm tired of telling people that we're uh what sovereignty means i'm just gonna make them deal with me in that respect and so um and so i see that but also um the language <laughs> you know <laughs> it's if i was to go back in hood now you know i'd be so out of touch 
Um, now, you know, Don, I got from I, I my to generation. To you. Not would be you, 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 you. you. <laughs> 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 See what I'm saying? We are, we are exactly there. what I'm saying. <laughs> Unless I'm hanging out with my generation, yeah, then I'm fine, right? I can step back into the community and you know, my buddies will look at me and me and say, Oh, Negro, please. And and but that's with my generation. And so that's what I'm saying. It's a there's a generational difference. And um uh, because the younger generation, I you know, <laughs> yeah, I so, know exactly so Dad, what you're saying. <laughs> Dad, is there one word, you know, or one um, reaction that is intended to get under your skin the way Anthony said about, you know, someone asking him, are you black, black or just black? What what is the equivalent of that uh, in, in our culture? Yeah. Well, I mean, the equivalent is just the question of, uh, are you Indian? Or, okay. I don't know if there's a, well, you know, I have to think about that because. Um, See, for us. You know, yeah, what is it? For us, it would be, oh, he's Hispanic, right? Because Hispanic oh. is not a good word for us. Hispanic uh, is a word that was um, invented in 1972 by, by Robert yeah. or by Nixon, right? Uh, L, actually, I think it was LBJ. Oh, LBJ. Uh, okay. The, yeah, the Johnson administration, administration, because you know it was for census-taking purposes. At first, it was uh, Spanish-born and then Spanish-speaking, and as they were stripping us of uh, our language, then it became Hispanic. So, you know, there were plenty of folks who were from Latinx countries and Latinx uh, backgrounds, but they had been stripped of the language. And so the term became Hispanic. So what's your equivalent, Don? Do you have? You know, I think that I can't answer that, Luz, because I'm not quite sure what that would be. Now, my generation, we talked about that difference and or what I heard in our, our community that difference would be whether you were a hang around the Ford Indian or not, right? I mean, that that was that demarcation. It would be interesting to see if members of the American Indian community that may listen to this podcast, I would encourage them to uh, get in touch with us here at Counter Stories and let me know. I'm not aware, you know, other than other than the typical terms like Apple. Red on the oh, outside, yeah. white on the oh, inside. Yeah. We got you know, Oreo all, in the black community. Exactly. Coconut, and all. coconut in our community. Right. So other than that dynamic, but that's an interesting thing because I don't know. And and there may be, but I'm not aware of it. Luz, Luz you you <laughs> you peeling back layers here, right? So <laughs> so you know, one of the things that is that does common and it and it gets to a conversation we continue to have around um you know, there, there's a word that you 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 hear in ethnic study circles called hegemony, right? So there's yeah. a generation of folks who are on the front lines of fighting battles, particularly for marginalized communities. And then there's a point in which you you get older, you want to, you move out of the way, and a lot of times, especially if you've been successful in any kind of way, there's a force that allows you to be part of a new structure that's different than the one you were fighting, but not necessarily completely different, right? And so you become a part of that system and, and it's called hegemony, right? You, you kind of join the power structure and it doesn't necessarily mean that you leave your roots of trying to create new systems, but you are working within a system as opposed to from outside of a system in a different way. You get jobs, you get position and all of that. Um, and so that's part of the mix too that we're talking about. But then, Luz, you got me thinking about if we're going to talk about terminology, right, how it's changed over the years. You know, I remember my grandparents talking about field field Negroes versus house Negroes. Mm, yes. And this conversation yeah. goes back and forth. There's a colorism that's, right. that's happening there. So there's an anti-blackness, anti-lightness. Um, and again, some of that is internalizing white systems of hierarchy and individualism that aren't culturally rooted in our in our spaces. So they're divide and conquer space. So so that's in the mixed. But then also we see that over time, you 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 know, you have wealth becomes a demarcation of who is, you know, are you a 
Cosby Huxtable, you know, the Huxtable has a different thing, uh, a different connotation or, you know, uh, you lose street cred if that's the case. Right. But those folks, you know, you, those folks have been just as part and parcel. We, you know, many of the folks who were leading on the street for our major movements for rights are folks who had some resource. Are we going to get rid of them? So, so it, there, there's some complicating well, factors. Wasn't that the accusation of the original uh, NAACP? A, a multi generational, affluent, well to do folks. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And so, it's an interracial. Right. It was another thing. All right. Your yeah. proximity to whiteness is also something that is is in the mix here as we as we talk about keeping or, or what's in or out culture. So, you know, I, I, I want to ask this question of you. Right. So we've talked about some of the complexities and the things that are at play whenever we as we examine this com- this question of of who's a member <laughs> and who's not. Right. Um, I'm curious to see. To, I'm curious for you all as we close out. What are must-haves? What are what are essential pieces for you that are are things that you you hold in high esteem in terms of your cultural membership in your community? Is there something that you can grab onto to say, this is something that that I'm gonna hold on to, right? Not whether it's good or bad or whether it should be defended or not, but for you, what is something that you just must hold on to? as part of your own sense of cultural membership. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to hit you with the heavy one. Wow. All right, Luz, I'm waiting for you to jump oh in. <laughs> After that mess you gave her about jumping in before. Yeah. I, you're talking some smack with me now, Doc. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um You know, for me personally, it would have to be my culture. It would have to be my language, my culture, my music. Um, I grew up listening to childhood rhymes and stories that don't make sense, but, you know, anymore, like Mary had a little lamb kind of a thing, right? It, it doesn't make sense, but it, it's part of your identity. You you learn all of these um, aspects of your culture as a child. And my name, I mean, I I didn't change my name when I got married. You know, my, my husband's last name is Smith, and that says... Uh, non-identifying as it gets, I think, <laughs> in this country. I mean, you know, um, and I, I could not lose my my maiden name, you know. Um, and it's, it's really about being able to continue the practice of my culture. You know, when I greet folks in, in our communities, whether it's from someone from Mexico or someone from a Spanish-speaking background, we know how we greet each other. We hug and we kiss, even for the first time. We kiss on the, on the cheeks. I mean, that's how we greet each other. And of course, COVID has not allowed us to do that, the pandemic. But there are some some fundamental belief systems as a collectivist. You know, what I wanted to say earlier, and I'll say it now, even though we were really low income and I did, we didn't feel it, we were also very generous and philanthropic. I mean, we gave away things to folks who we thought were less fortunate than we were, you know? So it, it, it wasn't a matter of hoarding what little we did have. And I guess if, if I can boil it down now, as I, I sort through all of this, it is my identity as a collectivist and constantly looking to include others to be a part of something good and to help others in life. I mean, that really is my identity and that's what it would come down to is my collectivism. Probably so many, I think there are so many other little cultural markers that we just forget, you know, Luz? I mean, you're right because when I see another brother on the street, I just automatically, there's a nod. That's right. right? We just You don't even think about it. You just do uh -uh. And it's, just it's, it's so unique to the black culture that I've witnessed where if you see a total stranger, you can be anywhere. You can be hiking. You can be at a store. You can be in a restaurant. That nod would always happen. 
And it's an automatic sign of respect and validation that you see each other and that you're there, right? It's it's shared acknowledgement of struggle, right? It's shared acknowledgement of what we're all fighting for, as Toni Morrison spoke to. I think, you know, even the vernacular change, our vernacular and language changes when we're in community. It it just does. And and that's a marker of something in and of itself. The language, Mm -hmm. what we talk about, how we relate, the the kind of things that we we talk about. I, I, I have a conversation that's five sentences long in community. And it communicates something that would take me, uh, you know, 30 minutes and a full long conversation to explain outside of that context. And there's nothing that I could add to what Luz just said. And that's the one thing that that just amuses me is all those same cultural markers exist in the uh, native populations. Everything. So. Now that she's kind of laid that out, even though I don't speak the language, the language, it's the language that is the culture. And and so not having that, you know, the language, the slower way of life, the communal collectiveness um, and the same thing. It was uh, um, if you come to a native home you're going to be fed whether you want to eat or not you don't turn them down right i mean that's just the way it is and it's so it, there's so many similarities in those cultural nuances between our communities but everything that Luz just said are those kind of markers in in, in the american indian community but then they also um exist on my black side of that fa- of my heritage and I can also uh, um, relate experiences other than, you know, everyone spoke English, but it was the same thing um, in on my dad's side. When I visited our relatives on that side and my family, I felt that same kind of connection to community where um, everyone helped everyone else. And and. There's that. So I didn't see, other than the language difference, um, the feeling of family and community existed in both, if that makes sense. And I didn't see that much difference between the black and or Native American community in that respect. Family, relatives, and community were all important keys on both sides for me uh, the the thing that i hold to hold on to is the the undeterred um courageousness to define culture as we see it however it morphs the good the bad the 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 ugly the the interesting you know it it makes me think of it, that kind of innovation and it's born and you can see it in the art and music, right? Every time a musical art form gets co-opted and taken from somebody else because they think it's cool, they put on our costume and I have seen my peoples <laughs> innovate to a space where um, it's not possible. I think of the way that Little Richard made music so fast and so uniquely black that Pat Boone could no longer steal it because it just, there's no recreation that works, that, that does it justice. And I see that happening in so many different places, I think. Um, and so I think that's part of the thing that I want to hold on to culturally. And then um, also just the way that we collectively um, thrive together and find ways to find love, even in all the messiness. Um, I love how we love. This is something that I think is unique. I can't put very specific and, and poignant words on it, but I love how we love. And I think one of the things to that's a complicating factor that we've been talking about as we as we wrap up here, um, it comes to mind in the words in the works of Toni Morrison. Um, Toni Morrison writes about um, the bat the the battle we fight. Um, they she says they fight this battle all the way to the grave. The laugh that is a little too loud, the enunciation a little too round, the gesture a little too generous. 
They hold their behind in for fear of a sway too free. When they wear lipstick, they never cover the entire mouth for fear of lips too thick. And they worry, worry, worry about the edges of their hair. This is the continual fight at the margins of culture. And so I I quote Toni Morrison just to say that no matter how we define it, and no matter what the struggles are, there is a battle to keep our culture. And that can never be overstated. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of Arts Us. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General of the State of Minnesota. My opinions and comments are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate at Dendros Group and Cultural Consultant. This is Counter Stories. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.